Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Women of the Word podcast. I'm Lauren Susanto, here again with Jen Wilkin. So Jen, today's episode is going to be completely different from all the ones that we've done up to this point. So rather than look at a specific principle or method of Bible study, we're going to talk about a range of Bible study tools Mm -hmm. that people can use to help facilitate their study and whether or not they're helpful Mm -hmm. or useful or if you'd recommend them or anything you would recommend, just things that people can have as they study the Bible to help. Yeah. Great. So we're going to start with an easy one, a physical Bible, (laughs) (laughs) which honestly could kind of be not many people bring them to church anymore. People just have Bibles on their phones. So is a physical Bible a helpful tool when people are doing Bible study? It is. It is a, it is a helpful tool. Um, a lot of this can depend on how you learn. You know, I think people will know better than I do, obviously what their learning style is. I'm a very visual learner. And so for me having a physical copy of the Bible, it does several things. It helps me to visualize where I saw something on the page, which is just something that makes learning sticky for me. But also I think that it helps us to stay focused. I think anytime that you're reading on your phone in particular, like I know this cause I teach the Bible from a platform all yeah. the time and people will get out their phone Bible and then they'll get a notification right. or something like that. So it's not that you can't read in a digital format. It's just that it doesn't necessarily help us to focus the way that we might if we just have a physical copy of the Bible in front of us. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, you can see I have, this is the copy I've had since 2007. I've had it recovered. Yeah. I, and, and I'm very like sensitive to like, when am I going to have to get a new one? Because <laughs> I know where everything is right, in this one. Right. It feels like an old friend at this point. And I don't know that a digital copy is ever going to have that old friend feeling to it. I personally don't make any notes in mm-hmm. my Bible. It's a matter of personal preference. If you want to do it, you can. But for me, I like to keep it clean because I don't want like old memories of what I learned about a passage to bombard me when I go back to it. I want to be able to see it um, on a clean page each time. So... Um, I do have a Bible I've had for a long time, but it has zero writing in it. Wow. So kind of going off of physical Bibles, what do you think about study Bibles? Mm-hmm. What's When would a study Bible be most helpful or useful? Study Bibles are a really basic and essential tool for anybody who wants to take a learning journey with the Bible. It is important to remember what study Bibles can and can't do. So we've talked about when we went through comprehension, interpretation, mm-hmm. application, sort of the right time to use a study Bible. You do want to use it for those envelope questions, the who, what, when, where, why, how, and then you want to put it away until you've spent some time in your Bible that doesn't have study notes. So like this Bible that I carry with me everywhere, it does not have study notes in it because we can fall into a pattern of thinking that the study notes are equivalent or roughly equivalent in authority to what we're reading in the Bible itself. So that's one aspect is we forget those are not the inspired words of God. Yeah. We, we wouldn't say that, but like in the way that we think about them. Uh, and then also we just wanna be careful that we're not um, popping our head down to read an explanation of something before we've had a chance to let ourselves dwell in the I don't know and really let the sense of what we don't know settle in. So um, they have their place and that place is at the beginning of your process. And then you can invite it back in once you've done work, just looking at a clean copy of the text. But it is important to recognize that study Bibles are written by human beings Mm -hmm. who in some cases are writing from a particular theological vantage point. And so 
it's a useful exercise for everyone at some point to have more than one study Bible that they compare to just see how commentators handle different things differently in yeah. those um, spaces. Uh, how would you go about choosing a study Bible if you mm -hmm. don't own one? Do you have a guiding principle for how to choose that if that's not something that you've currently owned in the past? Yeah, I, I think it's not a bad idea to talk to someone on your church staff and ask them what they found to be a helpful study Bible. You know, there are several, there's about three big ones that everybody, you know this better than me, that everybody <laughs> would just kind of uh, go out and purchase with a degree of confidence in them. And so um, you're really just looking, and, and so much of the information is basic. It's things like maps, you know, or um, defining uh, doctrines or things like that, just some basic things that you would want um, regardless of who the publisher is. So you're not going to go too, too far off the rails with any given study Bible that's been out there for a long time and has probably been recommended to you by someone who's sort of in your theological stream where they can say, yeah, I've spent a lot of time with this Bible. And I, that's, a, that's something I really can't overemphasize enough is it's really helpful to the average learner who I would include myself in that number to have... Um, an access point, someone who does spend a lot of time in commentaries or in Bibles to make sure that you're getting pointed toward things that are going to be consistent with your theological framework. Yeah, makes sense. And you just mentioned commentaries. What role would a commentary play in this Bible study process that we've been talking about? Well, you know, as we saw when we were going through our three stages, they definitely play an important role. There, That's a teaching component. Mm -hmm. And so even if someone were to sit and listen to me teach over passages of the Bible that they had studied in, I'm giving them commentary. Basically, I've crafted my teaching from other people's work that they've done mm -hmm. um, to bring together and synthesize ideas for people. So I would say think in general terms of of anything that's talking about the Bible is commentary of some form or another. And commentaries are best read after we have spent time working through comprehension and interpretation and application on our own, but then they are very important. Um, I'm surprised how many times I forget to tell new teachers no, no, you should be using commentaries because I assume that they would, yeah. but a lot of yeah. uh, people who are new in the teaching process think they're supposed to read the passage and then some big idea is going to jump out at them that they're then to teach to someone. Yeah. But that's, again, we need conversation partners. And so you're going to those conversation partners who are in commentaries. And just as with study Bibles, you want to get commentaries that are recommended from people who you're like, oh, I know that this person is a trustworthy person to recommend to me one commentary over another. Yeah. There's something to be said for reading bad commentaries. Mm -hmm. But you would want to do that when you have your feet underneath you. Right. You know, be able to tell bit. the difference. That's right. You need yeah. to be able to have a, enough understanding to be able to tell the difference. Are there any other cautions that you would uh, say to people about using commentaries just from maybe a big picture standpoint? Things to keep in mind, especially if, you know, I know a lot of my people I go to church with have study Bibles, right. but... I don't necessarily engage in conversations with people about, oh, in this commentary I read. Right. Uh, so study Bibles might be something that's pretty easy Accessible. for people yeah, to pick mm -hmm. up, be able to use on their own if they've mm -hmm. never done that before. But commentaries could be the, kind of a whole new ballgame, mm -hmm. especially for people who might not have had a formal education in doing those for right. college or Bible classes or anything like that. So just any kind of helpful tips for people who might say, I just don't even know where to begin yeah. when it comes to commentaries or how to use them. 
So my personal tips for choosing commentaries are I generally try to get a range of things that are um, lay level accessible all the yeah. way to scholarly. And there are some of us who really are never going to have a real interest in the scholarly ones. I have to go there because I'm writing studies for wide consumption and I want to make sure that I've honored the full thought processes that are out there, at least giving them consideration before I say that's not going to be relevant to what we're trying to do here. Yeah. Um, but it is helpful to sort of understand that there are different levels of commentaries mm -hmm. and different styles in which they're written. And I think that there are a lot of less academic commentaries that are out there that in many cases are someone's sermon series, a pastor's sermon series that was basically transcribed or reworked yeah. into yeah. a commentary. I'm a huge fan of those because the pastor-theologian combination is a pretty special one. It's someone who's not just thinking about high-level thoughts. They're also thinking about how to connect those thoughts to the average learner. Mm -hmm. And so that's me. And so I think, you know, my, my, my best case in point here is R.C. Sproul, who was so formative in my own thinking about teaching someone who was able to take high-level ideas and then give them to people like me without reducing the impact uh, or the content, um, just giving accessibility in the way that he spoke or the way that he taught. So, um, and since most of us are reading commentaries, not just for the sake of, um, being more awesome at understanding the Bible, but for the sake of telling someone else what we're learning, I think it's really helpful to use commentaries that do use illustrations or do use metaphors where they're looking for ways to connect the content to you beyond just simply, I've done the scholar scholarly research on this word in the Greek. Um, so, uh, also I would just say it is good if you don't have knowledge of the original languages and I include myself among that number to make sure that you use, uh, commentators who do so that you're not out there trying to use, this will be a tool we'll probably have on our list, uh, Hebrew Greek lexicon, like yeah. an online Hebrew Greek lexicon, trying to do a word study on your own when you don't have knowledge of the original languages. I would never do that. I want to get that from someone who I know knows what they're doing and, and use theirs if I need to use it at all. I actually think those are things to use pretty sparingly for yeah. the average person. That makes sense. Let's let's just talk about that right yeah. now since we just brought it up. So lexicon is mm -hmm. a fancy word for dictionary. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you can go out to um, like Blue Letter Bible or some of these online um, sites and, and you can say, oh, in this verse, the word for mercy is this. Yeah. You know, where else do I see that word in the Bible? And there's some degree of usefulness that someone like me who does not know what's going on might be able to draw from that. Mm -hmm. Like I might be able to see, oh, this word occurs this many times. But even that, you wouldn't want to make a major point in your thinking around that unless you were certain that the occurrences were all being communicated the same way. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily know that, right? right? Right. So I just try to give a wide berth to those things because I don't know the original languages, but praise God, there are people who do, who've devoted right. their entire lives to, to being able to do that. And that's a gift to the church. So I just want to make sure if I need to think through something like that, that I'm going mm -hmm. to someone who does know what they're doing versus trying to put it together on my own out there just because I have access to yeah. a tool, it might not be the best tool for me yeah. to use. Yeah, that's, that's really freeing too, I think, for people who might not have had a formal Bible education to know there is such a wealth of resources mm -hmm. available. Yeah. But some of those things are very technical and talk mm -hmm. about things that do require some level of scholarship. Mm -hmm. And so to know that there are tools that we have available at our disposal, that doesn't mean we have to use all of them. Right. 
That's right. So we don't necessarily, if you don't have formal education in the Greek Hebrew language, mm -hmm. we don't need those lexicons. What would about a normal English language dictionary? I'm a huge fan of this. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know how you'll be reading along and you'll think, I would never have written this sentence this way. Yes. Which tells you that a translator was trying really hard to pull something from the original language into modern English. Mm -hmm. And so two really good tools, two really important tools that everybody has access to are, well, it's technically it's three because the first one is a dictionary slash thesaurus. Yeah. So if you see a word, even if it's a word that is familiar to you, so like uh, you might look up an unfamiliar word like propitiation and see what the definition is for that or what synonyms are that are out there for that. Uh, but you also might look up a word that you do know, um, like um, holy. And you might just see how the dictionary is defining it, or you might see some synonyms. What it does is it starts to sort of stir up your internal vocabulary around yeah. it. But then a next step, I used to point people more toward the English dictionary before we did have a lot of online access to multiple translations of the Bible. But now you can go to somewhere like Bible Hub and you can put in, you know, uh, whatever it is, John 3.16, and it will show you just that verse in major translations. Now it's going to show you some translations that might be less useful and helpful, but let's say that you just went out and you read that same verse in four major translations, like um, the New English Translation, the ESV, the NIV, and the Christian Standard. And just like look at the four different ways that four serious-minded translation committees worded the same verse in modern English, and you'll start to see some of that synonym and definition work is actually done for you by those translators who had knowledge of the original languages. And so that is actually a tool that I gravitate more toward now than having people go to the English dictionary, although I do still think that there's usefulness in the dictionary and the thesaurus as well. So I will just note, you probably heard it in there, one of the major translations that I did not mention is the message. Mm -hmm. And that's not because I don't like the message, it's because the message is not a translation, it's a paraphrase. Mm -hmm. It's uh, what Eugene Peterson uh, would say if he were putting, it was what Eugene Peterson did say as he was writing the Bible out in plain English for his own local church congregation. So I think it's beautiful. I think it is helpful, but it's not a word for word or thought for thought translation. And so if you think about that paraphrase and any other paraphrase out there in the category of a commentary instead of a mm -hmm. translation, it can help you. So they're useful in our understanding, yeah. uh, but they may only give sort of a sliver of an interpretation of a verse instead of a, a wider understanding of it. So the three things that you mentioned of the thesaurus, and the dictionary and looking at things in different translations. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good reminder that just because we're familiar with a verse yes. doesn't mean that I know exactly what that means. That's right. And those are all, as we looked at, as we were talking about uh, interpretation and comprehension, those are tools that can help with comprehension and interpretation. Because if you do enough comparing, enough thinking about the way things are worded, then you're ready to do the work of summarizing or paraphrasing those two skills that are important to right. starting to ask, what does it mean? Because if you can summarize something or if you can write it in your own words, even if you write it in your own words badly, mm -hmm. as we talked about, right. you know, or if you write a summary that's not awesome, you're still moving toward you doing the work of interpretation. And then when you read someone else's 
summarizing thought or paraphrase, you have to bump your own up against it. Okay, let's take a little bit of a, a turn in this conversation, talk about some uh, other types of tools. Okay. You said that in your physical Bible, you don't take notes. I don't. Do you take notes in any other capacity? Oh yeah. Okay. Tell us about your process. Yeah. So um, if you've ever done one of my studies or even if you've read Women of the Word, you know that I recommend getting a copy of the text that you can mark on. Because one of the reasons I don't write in my personal Bible is the amount and type of writing that I'm hoping people will do as they're going through the learning process is greater than will fit in here. And also, if this is some special gift that someone gave you, you're not going to risk writing something that you might have to scribble through or you know rethink. You right. want to write things in there that are of lasting significance. Yes, yes. And so um, I get a nice, clean copy of the text. And when Women of the Word was written, actually, I was pointing people toward you know copying things a chapter at a time off of online resources. But in the intervening years, miracle of miracles, now we can get scripture journals that are affordable and beautiful. So you yeah. can get an entire book of the Bible that is in a journal format with room for you to take notes and room for you to mark on the text with space in between. And um, I love them so much because it keeps everything in one place. And so when I am focusing on one particular book of the Bible, I get my scripture journal and I get my colored pencils, yeah. which I know we'll probably talk about in just yeah. a minute. And well, we talked about having a physical copy of the Bible, but right. there's another step in here for repetitive reading that is a huge help. And that is an audio version of the Bible. So I start listening to the book on repeat and I start reading the book on repeat and I keep my little journal with me because as insights start to come or as questions start to arise, or as I start to hear repeated ideas and themes, I just start jotting them in there. And so I keep it on me all the time. Like sometimes I pull into the parking lot after driving down the road and I'm like, I gotta note some <laughs> things in there before I forget them yeah. or whatever it is. But then I know right where that journal is. And if I ever wanna go back, you know, even if after I'm done studying that book, I can go back and find that journal and look in there and say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll note, even if I find something in a commentary, I'll note the page number where I found it so I can get back to it. So for me, it's a, it's a really useful way to keep everything in one place, but also it's free of cross-references, it's free of um, any kind of commentary. And so it really is good to force you to focus on just what you're reading. And you can't jump around to other books of the Bible. It forces you to stay put too. Right, helps in that repetitive reading mm -hmm. even too, mm -hmm. just in that. So you mentioned that you use colored pencils to take your notes. Do you have any other recommendations? <laughs> people. Should everyone go out to Target and buy yeah. a pack of colored pencils? Yeah. I'm actually more of a colored pen girl myself. Yeah. And you really Same. want to get the ones that don't soak all the way through yeah. the page. But now we're descending into insanity, aren't we? <laughs> uh, they really, there are all kinds of weird preferences you can develop around the colored pencil thing. And depending on the type of genre that you're in, you would mark differently, you know, mm. as we talked about a little bit already. But you, you, the goal of marking those repeated words or phrases or of like illustrating an idea out in the margin, anything like that is something that we don't always think about. It's so that I have my scripture journal and I can flip through it and I get a visual sense of, oh, he talked about reconciliation here. I see a blob of it here. I see a blob of it here. I see a blob. And it helps you work toward um, uh, an outline 
structure of the book, even if it's not a well-defined outline in your head, you're way better able to get the general flow of an argument in your head if you've done some of that work as you're going through the book. I'm thinking specifically, uh, I just worked through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he basically is making three arguments in a cyclical nature. And so when I marked all of those up in, in those particular epistles, you can trace it all the way through and you realize that what before felt like it was almost repetitive in a nonsensical way was actually really organized. So we've kind of mentioned throughout the podcast a little bit, just using and listening to different podcasts or reading books by solid authors that mm -hmm. are going more in depth on a particular book of the Bible or a topical Bible study type of thing. Yeah. At what point in the Bible study process would you recommend those? What are cautions to use? Mm -hmm. Anything that you'd say in kind of all of the the world of other books, Christian books and podcasts mm -hmm. and things that people can go to that mm -hmm. expand differently than what a commentary or a study Bible would do. Yeah, well, again, it depends on the subject matter, right? So yeah. if it's strictly commentary over the content of the book, then it belongs later in your process after you've done your work on your own and you know had good conversation with human dialogue partners in the flesh. Right. But um, there are online resources. There are things that are technically commentary that would be more generally helpful tools. So things that are teaching you the big story of the Bible from start to finish. Or maybe it is a podcast that's helping you do a reading plan versus a deep dive into one book. Or maybe it is a um, teaching tool that is giving you basic historical timeline for the Bible. So um, like we have a thing that we use at my church. It's not a podcast, but it's a resource that we have that we use all the way from children all the way up through adults. That's the 40 major events of the Bible. And so for the children, we've created a song that teaches them these 40 events and yeah. their flashcards, but the adults use the flashcards too. So that would be something that on one level, it's commentary, but also what it's doing is it's helping you to understand if you're in the book of Leviticus, where exactly it falls in all of that. Or if you're in the book of Isaiah, where are we in the history of the nation of Israel? What are the significant dates? Because really there are just a handful of historical dates that a good Bible student needs to be able to place books in the time period that they're in and understand a little of what's going on in Israel's history. So I would say anything that's dealing with those context questions, it's kind of helping you get into the ancient Near Eastern mindset. Those are generally useful tools. Again, you want to consider the source, like who is it that's telling right. you these things, but assuming that you've gotten a good recommendation on one to listen to, um, those can be helpful. But if it's talking specifically about a book of the Bible that you're studying, you want to hold off on listening to sermons or podcasts or commentary on that until you've worked on it yourself first. So we've talked a lot about these, some physical Bible study tools. Yes. We can hold in our hands, we can purchase, we can look online. What role does curiosity play in this process? Well, curiosity matters a lot, and it is, depending on the curriculum that you might have gone and purchased, it may be one that is either encouraging or discouraging curiosity. This was one of the major factors that pushed me to want to create curriculum, so not just articulate a method, but actually give curricula that were helping coach people into asking better questions intuitively themselves. So. I know that I can say, hey, you should read this, this 
passage as though it's a book about God. You should read looking for what attribute of God you see there. Um, and you may or may not have immediate success with that based on how familiar you are with what's true about God. In a curriculum, a curriculum can ask guided questions that you, the learner, should know how to ask on your own, either eventually or already, to help you become better at reading any book of the Bible by the time you finish that particular curriculum versus just knowing the book of the Bible that you're in. So I always say with my studies, I have two hopes. One is that you'll have a working knowledge of the book that we're gonna study from start to finish. And then two, that you'll be more comfortable studying any book of the Bible after you do this study because of the tools that we're giving you. Mm -hmm. So um, Howard Hendricks had this marvelous principle. He's a famous Bible teacher and teacher of Bible teachers. And he, he used this principle in teaching and it was never do for your student what your student can do for themselves. Mm -hmm. Which means that the kinds of questions that he would pose were questions that required work on the part of the student. They weren't the kind of thing where it was a leading question so that the student could feel like, oh, I answered that right and check off the box. Um, they weren't the kinds of questions where if it was a hard answer, you just had to keep reading a little further down and it would give you the answer. And so you can hear in all of that that what the good question does is it raises dissonance and then it lets the dissonance hang there. And um, so many of us think of using a Bible study curriculum as I'm gonna do my homework and when I get done, I'm gonna feel like I got an A. Right. And so I'll put questions in my curricula that will say, what do you think Paul means when he says, you know, fill in the blank. And routinely women will say, um, well, what am I supposed to put there? You know, or they try to guess what they're supposed to think. And so it takes some time for us to allow ourselves to speculate, to think, I don't know, what do I actually think he's saying? Because we fear thinking the wrong thing, but often thinking the wrong thing is the starting point for getting to thinking the right thing. So yeah. you just allow yourself to, to work through it. So that's a good example of a question that you help teach women that you teach Bible study to, to learn, to ask yes. as they do Bible study. Are there any other foundational questions that you would recommend? So if people aren't maybe familiar with your studies or they're doing Bible study on their own and not in a group that they can make sure to ask themselves mm -hmm. as they're going through a process. Yeah, a really good um, way to think about this if you're doing it on your own and you, and you get into a portion of a book of the Bible and you're thinking, I'm bored mm -hmm. or I'm confused. One of the things that you can ask is, if this portion of the book dropped out of it, how would the message of the book change? Like, why is this important to this yeah. whole book? And if you're having trouble answering that question, then it probably means you should stop what you're doing and do a few more repetitive readings of the book because then it's gonna to begin to come more clear to you why a particular passage is there. But if we understand that everything that's in there is there on purpose, then it changes the way we might think of any particular part of it. So kind of a classic example of this might be the genealogies, yeah. you know, where you're like, this cannot possibly be important, you know, certainly not for me and for now. And so then asking yourself, but hang on, hang on, what would it have meant for them and for then? Because if it doesn't matter to me, that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It means I'm missing something really important because this has been preserved for me for centuries. Right. So why is it in here? Well, gosh, they didn't have copies of the 
they didn't have copies of the Bible. They didn't even have a written copy of who their uh, their forebears were. And so this oral tradition that we're seeing preserved here, gosh, that feels like it might be really important. You know, I can't think back even two generations in my family and name off who the important people are. But here is this important record that's kept so that we can see a righteous line that's preserved. You know, and then why are all these lifespans in here. That doesn't seem useful. And asking yourself, rather than being dismissive or saying this can't possibly be important anymore, asking why would this have been valuable? And and then being able to be patient as you wait for the answer to emerge. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. Yeah. Um, what would you say about literary imagination? Maybe define what you mean by that and why you think that's important as a Bible study tool. Well, so we talk a lot about that the Bible should be read literally. You'll hear Christians say that a lot. And I understand what they mean behind that. What they're saying is like, we should take this as it is written, right? Yeah. But what we sometimes get into is a misunderstanding of that, which means we read it woodenly. Um, and we really aren't trying to read the Bible literally. We're trying to read the Bible literately. We're trying mm -hmm. to read it the way that it was intended to be read. And that's why we pay attention to things like genre rules. And that means that when we think about the way that it's read, we do want to have a literary imagination around it. We want to ask questions like, why is this story told in here and not another one? Like uh, you think about the book of Judges, for example there were not only 12 judges in the history of the nation of Israel. So why these 12 stories? And not only that, but why in this particular order? Because they could have been told in any, they could have been told in chronological order, but they're not. They're, they're told in a different order than that. Um, why is Deborah in there? Didn't have to include her, yeah, right? And right. in many ways, it feels like it complicates the book instead yeah. of making the book more simple. So what role does Deborah serve in the story? Um, why does the story of Samson come at the end instead of closer to the beginning? And when we begin to ask questions about why the book is structured the way it is, why the tone is the way that it is, um, why the character is presented the way that they are, and I'm talking specifically about historical narrative here in this example, yeah. it would be different for other genres. Then we begin to look at the Bible the way that it was written. Again, God didn't have to use human authors, but he did. And human authors used recognizable literary forms. And so when we allow ourselves to have that kind of an imagination around it and ask the kinds of questions that we might ask of a book and book club, which is in no way to diminish the role of the spirit in the inspiration of scripture. If anything, I think it makes it more beautiful um, that the spirit would work through human authors and show their their um, their unique um, elements of writing in this final product. Um, but I think that it it allows us to enter into the world and the words of the Bible the way that they were crafted for us to receive them. So maybe talk a little bit about your personal habits and routine mm -hmm. when it comes to, to Bible study. What is something that you do? If you could walk us through maybe an example of what your Bible study routine looked like, what would you have to, say, mm -hmm. to share with us? Well, I wish I could tell you that it was very well ordered, <laughs> but you've already heard me disclose a little of how it sounds. <laughs> Uh, that, you know, I've, I've said it a million times already, but that repetitive reading piece, I just can't overestimate how important it is for people. And especially uh, if you're someone who's felt like a failure at Bible memory, 
work and I'm getting older and memorizing is getting harder and harder for me. Repetitive reading is in many ways an adequate or a beautiful substitute for that because you're gaining a lot of the benefit of the rhythms of the meaning, even if you're not getting word for word commitment of what the words are. But though I often do find that the word for word is getting stuck in there as I'm doing the repetitive reading. So a lot of what I'm doing is reading repetitively reading. I know it's an old joke, like what's your first step? I read all the way through. What's your next step? I read all the way through, you know, and you just (laughs) keep saying that over and over again, but it's it's actually true. And then on the later read throughs of a book is when I start to mark down what I'm beginning to see emerge. Right. And then, yeah, I read commentaries. I got to stand up and teach at least once a week, sometimes more than that. And um, so that means that I do have, even though I might have a process of repetitive reading that plays out across weeks, I do have a methodical way that I'm preparing for teaching. And I don't separate my teaching prep from my personal devotion. I know that some people do. Some teachers prefer to have one thing here and one thing here. For me personally, I, when I stand up to teach it, I need to know that I've felt it down in my core yeah. before I'm going to offer it to someone else. And so I have one discipline. And because of that, it means I am needing to go through and find the structure and think about what are the what are the hot spots, so to speak, in a passage and how do I communicate those clearly. So for me, I don't divorce study preparation to teach from my personal study time in the scriptures. Yeah. Maybe let's go back and talk a little bit more about this repetitive reading, just as mm-hmm. it's one thing to repetitive read the book of James. Easy, yep. takes a few minutes. Yep. What if somebody's reading Genesis mm-hmm. or Numbers? Well, I hope they are. <laughs> when people are reading Genesis and Numbers, how does what does repetitive reading look like when there's 50 plus chapters mm-hmm. in a book? Mm-hmm. How is there a way that you go about breaking that up or you read a chapter at a time? You know, this kind of gets to the heart of quiet time culture. Yeah. Uh, because for a longer book, you really probably don't want to read only 15 minutes a day. It's going to be hard to keep the flow of what's happening. In the same way that if you were reading a really great novel, you wouldn't just want to give it, you know, 10 or 15 minutes at night before you fall asleep. You'd want to have like, I got three hours in a day of reading this. Yeah. And so I think generally speaking, we need to rethink a little of if we only think of our interactions with the Bible in terms of a daily brief practice, uh, some of us might do better to um, gasp, not do a daily practice, but instead have maybe two or three times a week where we have a much longer stretch because you're just going to be able to think different thoughts. You're going to be able to absorb different things. If you want to have the daily practice as well, that's great. Yeah. Uh, But I think sometimes we have sanctified the daily practice beyond what it is good for. I think it's great to have a daily practice that orients you to God being seated on his throne. Um, But to say, and that is going to be my, my formational space for learning the Bible is probably where we need to to reevaluate because there there just isn't a substitute sometimes for having a longer stretch where you can just read. Yeah. Well, Jen, thanks so much for walking us through just a few of Bible study tools that we can utilize in our Bible study times. I know sometimes it can be kind of overwhelming and confusing. There's so many things out there that we can use to supplement and help mm-hmm. our engagement with the scriptures. And so it was just great to have this short introduction on what we can do moving forward, some helpful tools to equip us in our Bible study process. 
Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Women of the Word podcast. Make sure to join us again next week where Jen and I will be talking through some tips for teaching the Bible and how anybody can teach the Bible. And yes, we really do mean anybody. So if you found these conversations helpful, we'd love for you to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you all here again next week.